Well, today we're looking in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 through 16 will be the first text we're going to read. There's actually three key passages of Scripture. Uh, there is a challenge to go through three chapters in 30 minutes or so. There's a challenge to do that. And so I've picked out three key scriptures for us to read along the way, and then I'll help uh, tell the story. The other, the other temptation that every one of us are going to need to fight as we study this text is t there's going to be a temptation to pull away from having our eyes on Samuel and put them on Saul. You see, Samuel is in the background of the Bible. That, I think that's one of the reasons why we rarely preach a sermon series based on his life because there's always somebody larger than life in front of him. But that's not, uh, that is very similar to the way most of us live our lives. And so if we're going to keep the point of view consistent with the way we live our lives, I think this is a helpful point of view for us to be looking at these events through Samuel's eyes. Because most of us are in the supporting cast of life, are we not? Very few of us are superstars. I don't know that there are any uh, in the room. All of us here are humble servants working behind the scenes to see that God's work is done. So work with me with those two things. Realize I'm going to be summarizing a lot. You can go back later and read all of the details. And second, work with me to, to not draw attention too much to Saul and to realize that we're looking at this from Samuel's point of view and then at the end of the message, I'll wrap it up with some applications uh, that I think that all of us uh, can take. I think there's applications for those of us who are younger and raising children or praying to be, have the privilege to be able to raise children sometime. And I think there's also a special application for those of you that have had a few birthdays and have some gray hair uh, because Samuel, in this text, is an old man. I was surprised to see elbows going on in the auditorium during that statement. That surprised me. Well, last week we learned that Samuel did not take Israel's transition into the monarchy very well. I, I think that's an understatement. Uh, Samuel didn't want it to happen. However, as it turns out, I guess it's ironic to some degree that Samuel's greatest kingdom contribution took place in this transition time. So the very thing he didn't want to happen is the circumstances that God used him the most to accomplish his kingdom purposes in. And one of the ways that you can just lay that out quickly is we realize that Jesus uh, ascended from uh, uh, David's lineage, correct? Well, you need to have a King David for that to happen. Uh, you know, as much as Samuel did not want the monarchy, it played in God's plans for the greatest king that ever lived, King Jesus. King David just really is an example to help prepare us for what King Jesus would do. And so all of this is, as we will see, a part of God's will. Well, Samuel shown during this time, even though it's not what he wanted. He took it as a personal affront, but God says, look, if they're, if they're rejecting anybody, it's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. Well, we covered that last week. A quick observation I want to make, though, before I, I leave that uh, part of the story. 
is that Samuel was opposed to the monarchy, right? There's no question about that. However, he was not opposed to treating his judgeship as if it was a monarchy. Judges do not have princes. They don't have sons in waiting to take over the throne. And yet Samuel appointed his sons to be judges, and he set up a succession plan as if he was a monarchy. Uh, Samuel, what were you thinking? God appoints judges. His judges don't appoint future judges. And really, I think this was a low point in, in Samuel's life. I think if you were to look at a time when Samuel uh, made um, mistakes in bold print in all caps, it was when he appointed his sons, not just because his sons weren't faithful, but because it was presumptuous of him to do that. It's God's kingdom. He takes care of these things. He didn't need Samuel to step ahead of him for that. Well, back to the question of establishing the monarchy. I'm not surprised that Samuel resisted this change. But at the same time, I'm surprised that he didn't know it was coming. Now, I'm not surprised that he resisted the change because, well, we tend to resist change. We are hardwired. I mean, we as people. People are hardwired for things to stay consistent. The homostasis, we want it. We want things to stay the same. And we are opposed to most changes unless there are ideas. Now, if the changes are our ideas, then they make perfect sense and everybody ought to go along with the plan. But other than that, uh, we're resistant. We're especially resistant when change is thrust on us and we feel like we don't have any choices in the matter. But as resistant as people are to change, a truism is that you cannot not change. Now, I may not mean by that what you initially think. I'm not saying we have to uh, go along. There are sometimes folks we dig our heels in. There's some folks times that we dig our heels in and we resist ungodly change. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we lose the capacity to be flexible and adapt. In fact, uh, those of you that are seasoned citizens like myself, one of the keys of health in older age is the ability to stay flexible. I mean physically, uh, to be able to be flexible. And if we're not, then we've got problems coming down the road. But it's not just a truism about our physical fitness. It's also a truism about our mental fitness. You know, it's very easy to dig in and resist change, even change that is good change, that is needed change. Now, there's different categories, right? Remember, we do need to resist the ungodly change. But there is a lot of change that we resist in the name of Jesus that needs to happen, and that should happen, and that is happening because God is making it happen, all right? Just the fact that we're comfortable with it does not mean or the fact that we're uncomfortable with it does not mean it's ungodly. Is that fair enough? And sometimes we get uncultural, uh, uncomfortable with something for cultural reasons. And we get mixed up between our political views, our cultural views, and our religious views. It's so easy to get that confused. Folks, I do not believe anybody should have political convictions. It's okay for you to have a political view, 
But convictions belong in the category of faith, not in the category of politics. Uh, because, you know, my political view is this, everybody's wrong. I, I just, uh, and because I think everybody's wrong, I'm probably wrong too, right? But when we start treating those views as if they're a biblical truth, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Okay. Well, when we say we cannot not change, what I mean is if you start resisting needed change, if you lose or even inevitable change, then it's going to turn you into a person you don't want to become. You will become a tenser person. You'll become a more resistant person. You'll become a sadder person, an angrier person. You'll become a person not only we won't want to be around, but you won't be want to be around yourself. Being flexible and realize what are the things that we stand up and we resist and what are the things that we let pass. I think the best word I can use to know the difference is wisdom. We need godly wisdom to know the difference. Now, we're going to see in a moment that Samuel did adapt. He did adapt to this change, even though he didn't like it, and because of his flexibility, it became a very productive season of his life. But before we get there, I want to explain the other statement that I made just a moment ago. I said that while I wasn't surprised that he resisted the change, I am surprised that he didn't know it was coming. Throughout the book of Judges, one of the explanations that the writer gave for the people's wicked behavior was they didn't have a king. Have you ever caught that pattern in the book of Judges? For instance, examples of these editorial comments would be Judges 17.6, Judges 18.1, Judges 19.1, and Judges 21.25. I'm going to read 17.6 for you. That's just an example of the others, okay? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samuel should have picked up on that. But not only did the author of Judges connect the lack of a king to the problems of Israel, Moses also mentioned that there would be a time for the monarchy. In Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and when you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. Now, this is in Deuteronomy. Moses is writing this about what's happening in the future, which was what Pastor Charlie preached on last week, where the people said, give, give us a king. We want a king like the nations that are around us. Moses knew this was going to happen, and he wrote it in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He said, you may indeed set up a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So it was permitted all the way in the book of Deuteronomy. And then he says, but notice he says, the one the Lord your God will choose. He didn't say, people, pick your own king. And as we continue to read through Deuteronomy, you're going to see this monarchy is not going to be like other monarchies because this monarchy is going to be constrained by the will of God. It's not for a king to come and rule apart from the Lord. 
It was for the king to come and rule under the Lord's authority, which is different. And by the way, the only king that I know of that we have great detail over their life that fulfilled that uh, was King David. In fact, some of the restrictions that we're going to see here in the book of Deuteronomy really exemplify Solomon. And Solomon broke many of the restrictions that we talk about here. So though we generally think of Solomon as a good king, it's not what Moses was intending or God was intended as he inspired Moses to write Deuteronomy 17. Let me keep reading. One from among your brothers, you shall set over king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Boy, we could preach on that text, couldn't we? Should never turn that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his hearts turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he will write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. I think it's fascinating. Don't just read the Pentateuch that somebody else has written. You write it yourself. You scribe it yourself because you remember things that you write better than things you hear. Wanted the king to have God's word imprinted on his heart. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. And he shall learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and his statutes and doing them. This king was to be a God-fearer following God's law. Verse uh, 20 that his heart may not be lifted up among his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in this kingdom, he and his children and in Israel. Now, the monarchy was inevitable. I'm just surprised that Samuel didn't know it. I'm surprised that Samuel didn't know it was coming or that he overlooked it. But again, we're looking at the low point. Last week, we were looking at the low point of Samuel's life. He made some mistakes. Uh, anybody else in the room ever do that? Make some mistakes? There's times when we're more faithful than others. Fair enough? Well, it was inevitable. The book of Judges connected the malfeasance of the people with the fact they didn't have king. And Moses predicted the time would come when God would allow them uh, to have a king. Now, before we leave this text, because it's very important as we actually get to our text today, um, I need to point out to you the conditions that Moses put on having a king. First, God permitted a king. Permitted. That's different than God forced it or God chose it. He permitted a king, but he would not be a king of the people's choosing. He was going to choose who the king was going to be. It was God that was going to establish who was going to sit on the throne. This is going to be very important as we get to our three key verses here in a minute. Also, I want you to notice that, that uh, the conditions here are that he would have limited power. When you read the phrase, he uh, would not have many horses or many wives, it's easy just to read over that without thinking of the context. Well, horses were military might, and wives were diplomacy, because with wives came treaties with other nations. And so this 
text in Deuteronomy is saying, yeah, we're going to have a king, but his power is going to be limited. There will never be a time that you should have a king that is not dependent on the Lord for the victory. That's basically what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 17. Limited horses, limited wives. So limited power. And then the third thing, he must be following God's law. And you can see that in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy, verses 18 through verses 20. This is not a king that does his will. He is a leader that does God's will. I, can't, I, I could not imprint that on your mind more. There was, has never been a time in the history of the nation of Israel that God abdicated his throne. And the people did not push God off his throne. How could they? How could an ant push an elephant off course? It couldn't happen. Couldn't happen. And the surprising thing is that in every way, Saul fit the bill, at least in the text we're looking at this morning. Now remember, I asked you at the beginning to work with me not to make this sermon about Saul, and it's hard because Saul is a larger-than-life figure. But we need to do that hard work if we're going to be able to see this, what God is saying to us out of Samuel's life. Now, if you're familiar with the story, and if you're not, you'll find out in the weeks ahead, but if you're familiar with it, Saul really was a tragic figure. He was not a good king. He did not finish well. However, the fact that he didn't finish well often overshadows the indisputable fact that he started very well. And we're going to see some of that today. Now, next week, Pastor Charlie is going to be teaching, and he's going to share with the time that Samuel confronts Saul for his sin, and there becomes the downward spiral after that. But again, we're going to leave that uh, for next week. Instead, today, we're going to look at three key passages that really show that God chose Saul to be king. And God used Samuel in a very real way to make that happen. I know it usually doesn't take us this long to get to our text, but I promise this doesn't mean the sermon is going to be extra long. It's just that I needed to get that material out there. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15 through 16 says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and, and you shall appoint him to be prince over all my people Israel. I really love that the Hebrew word there is translated prince because it helps us understand this is not, uh, the father did not cease to be sovereign. Uh, he's going to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So remember, he says he's going to save us from the hands of the Philistines, save the people from the hands of the Philistines. And that God has heard the cries of the people. He has answered their prayer. Now, the circumstances, God just tells Samuel, you're going to meet him tomorrow. And when you meet him, you're going to know. And the circumstances of how he met Saul are both providential and comical. So Saul's father lost one of his donkeys. And he sent Saul out to find it. So he sends his boy out on an errand. He lost one of his animals. He sends his son out to go and find Aaron. He sends one of his servants 
with him to find this lost donkey. They look everywhere and they can't find the donkey. And so Saul's ready to give up and go face his father and say, Dad, you're going to have to get over it. You've lost a donkey. Let's move on. Probably that's not the way he would put it, but I suspect that's probably the kind of thoughts I would have had if I was the son spending my day out in the desert in the heat looking for a donkey. How, what would you have thought? But the servant said, no, let's not do that. Let's not quit yet. He said, I've heard that there's a man of God in the area. I hear there's a prophet in the area. Maybe he can help us know where to look for the donkey. And so Saul hesitates because he didn't have a gift to give to the prophet. He didn't want to show up empty-handed. And the servant says, well, I've got a coin here. And so we can give it. Uh, to the prophet when we get there. And so uh, he agrees. He hesitates, but he agrees. Now, he's about to be anointed king. The son that's sent out to find a donkey who's going to give up too soon and is resistant to go and ask the man of God for help because he doesn't have some kind of tribute to give him when he asks him. But providentially, this servant had the coin. Providentially, the servant had the knowledge there was a man of God there. And providentially, he had the chutzpah, is that a word? Uh, to go and keep the man of God from thinking about kingdom things to help them find the donkey. Okay, so that's the circumstance we're in. And so... They stop. Now, here's what blows my mind. Two men stop to ask women for directions. <laughs> at what time and in what place would that happen? Because if you're a real man, you don't need no stinking directions. Am I right, men? They stop and ask some women for directions, and they find out the women point them in the right direction where the man of God is. And so as they are approaching, Samuel knows, as the Lord tells him, that this is the anointed. Uh, the text is clear. God chose Saul to be king. Uh, they meet. They talk. And then they go up to the rooftop and stay on the rooftop until the break of day. This verse has special meaning to me because I have a good friend that was a missionary overseas in the Middle East for many years. And he talked to me about drinking hot tea and eating watermelon on the roof. Those things don't seem to go together to me, but apparently they made perfect sense to the folks in the part of the country where he was. But that's where friends went to talk, and still do in some cultures, up on the roof, enjoying a beverage and a snack. And they stayed up. So here the prophet of God is on the roof with the donkey hunter. talks through the day, has a meal with him, and through the night is on the roof just talking, which takes us to the second key passage. 
1 Samuel 10.1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil. You already know what's coming, don't you? Then Samuel took a flask of oil and he poured it out on his head and he kissed him and he said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. This is exactly what God told Samuel. Now I want you to remember, Samuel's not in favor of this. Don't forget that. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you as the prince over his heritage. All Saul wanted was to find his dad's donkey. And here he is with a man of God saying, God is going to use you to protect his people. God is going to use you to protect his people. And God is going to make you his king. After this anointing, Saul went to a Philistine outpost and he met a procession of the prophets. And the power of God fell upon him and he began prophesying. And God changed Saul's heart. Now, the pouring of the oil, you know, we know that's customary when someone is anointed as king. But oil is often used in Scripture as symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And so this pouring was not just saying, hey, you're about to be king. But it was covering him with the Holy Spirit, which in the Old Testament had a significance that in New Testament times and in our times it didn't because in the Old Testament time, the Spirit of God came upon people and the Spirit of God left people. In the New Testament times, the Spirit of God comes and indwells His people. And there's never a time that we do not have the Comforter with us. There's never a time that we walk apart from the guidance of the Lord. But that was not the way, that was not the imagery in the Old Testament time. And in fact, if we were getting deeper into Saul's life, we would see that there were times that the Spirit of God was on him, but there was also times where evil spirit was upon him and was guiding him. Well, Samuel, as he anoints him with his oil, is pouring, symbolically pouring the Holy Spirit over him. And now the next day, and, and I guess they didn't get much sleep if they stayed up all night on the rooftop, but the next day he goes to this Philistine outpost and he meets a procession of prophets and he begins prophesying right along beside of them because the Spirit of God fell upon him. And the scripture is clear that God changed Saul's heart. You see, Saul had a potential to be a great leader, not because of who he was, but because of what God had done in his life. Now, not to spoil next week's encounter, but it was his lack of obedience to the Lord that's the problem. He didn't follow what Deuteronomy said. He started to see the kingship as his instead of realizing that it is God's. You know, that's true in whatever assignment we have. I remember the years that I was a full-time pastor. I would begin every Monday morning with the same uh, ritual. I would walk into the office to begin with the week's work on Monday morning. And I would look at the desk that I was about to set in behind, and I would walk in front of it, and I would say, Lord, 
Empower me as I sit in your chair to guide your people. Because I understand that in this church, I'm just an under-shepherd. And I wouldn't sit down and start the week's work before I did that. I always wanted to be to remember that the church belongs to the Lord. Saul seems later to forget that. He started to read his own press and to be impressed with the fact that he was king. Good leaders are impressed with the one that gave them their assignment, not themselves. Well, God changed his heart. And uh, Saul wasn't putting himself forward, not at this point in the story. And again, I keep kind of leaking forward to talk about what's coming. My apologies after I asked you not to do it. I, I apologize because I'm leading you astray. Because this week, Saul's got it right. In fact, I often hear people criticize Saul for this next part of the story, for he's hiding among the supplies, among the, lu the luggage. They can't find him when it's time for him to be recognized. But you know, there's a New Testament's teaching about the the places of honor at the table. And it says, do not walk there. It says, wait to be invited. I am always suspicious of people that want to throw themselves in the limelight. In my view, at the local church setting, if you stand on this stage, you ought to do it with knees shaking. Not because you're nervous of what the people will think, but because... It is a fearful thing to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And if you do, the Lord better have spoken. It's a fearful thing. So I actually like the fact that Saul is hiding in the luggage. I really like the fact that he's not throwing himself forward there. They find him and they bring him out and when he stands in front of the people he is head and shoulders above the rest he was presidential so to speak he was kingly in their day his ethos there was a sense that he fit that he belonged now he didn't force himself there there was no ambition here again he was just trying to find his dad's donkey that's all But the prophet says, you're the king. And he trusts. And he stands up. And when he stands up, it's obvious to everyone looking at him that he's the kind of king. He's the kind of person that could be king. Now, I know we often contrast that with David. As David is a man after God's own heart. And he stood head and shoulders above the rest. And we say, I'd rather have a good heart, but I remind you, God changed Saul's heart. At this point in the story, Saul had a changed heart. He had a good heart. See, these two things don't have to be in juxtaposition with one another. A person can have natural human ability and be led by the Spirit. This is not either or. It could be both. And in this case, at this point of the story, it was. And then Samuel pauses and explains the duties and responsibilities of a king. 
Do you see why it took so much time in Kings, in Deuteronomy 17 now? Because that's likely the very information that Samuel gave to the people. Now, I don't want you to think that everybody was quick to embrace Saul as king. They weren't. Uh, one of the ways that you know you're a leader is if someone is sniping at you. So if you're a leader and people are sniping at you, stop complaining. It's just the way it is. You just move on. You just move on. You don't dwell on it. Uh, you don't lose sleep over it. You just move on. So not everybody was quick to embrace Saul, but in his, uh, to his defense, he didn't try to defend himself. You'll see that in chapter 10, verse 27. He didn't try to defend himself at all. He just let his critics speak. You don't have to chase after your critics. If they're wrong, everybody will know. And if they're right, everybody will know. And if you, uh, if you whine and complain about it, they'll know sooner. Well, about this time, the enemy seized Jabin. And a very cruel treaty was offered that the captors would gouge out the right eyes of all the captives to humiliate them. And it gave them amount of time to think about it. And so now these people are left with the choice of annihilation or losing an eye. And they're considering it. And Saul heard about it. He got angry. And he started to lead. He sent word to them, don't do anything, I'm coming. And he mustered together 30,000 soldiers. And they came there to the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them. Nobody's eyes were gouged out. This leads us to the third key verse in 1 Samuel 11, verses 14 through 15. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced gladly. Even Saul was happy about it. And so were all the men in Israel. Well, it was a great day. It was a great day. God chose a king. And that king was Saul. And at this point in the story, it was a good thing. There's a lot of folks that had two eyes left that were grateful that there was a king in Israel where everyone was no longer able to do what was right in their own eyes, no pun intended. Instead, God, by his mercy and grace, had used his king to lead people to accomplish his will. Well, that's where our story ends today. But before we go, there's a couple of thoughts that I want, a couple of things I want to point out. And I've reminded you a couple of times through the message, Pastor Charlie did a wonderful job letting us know last week 
that Samuel was not in favor of this transition. Yet, when God told him to lead in it, he did. Okay, we serve a sovereign God that expects us to obey him, even when we disagree with what he's doing. Even when we don't know what he's doing, we are to obey him. Trust and obey. Our opinions do not matter. What matters is what God has decided. And we do what he says even when we think he's wrong. We do what he says. Do you see Samuel doing that? Nowhere in the scriptures does it say Samuel thought, well, I was wrong, this is a good idea. Nowhere does it say it. Because it was irrelevant what Samuel thought. And if I might, it's irrelevant what I think and what you think too. Ours is to trust and obey. The second thing I want you to notice is the season of life that Samuel was in. He was an old man already. In fact, if I, if I counted right, uh, this sermon series has eight or nine different uh, sermons attached to it. But uh, Samuel was only young in the first two messages. The rest of his story happened, if you'll allow me to use a current phrase, post-retirement. It's what he did after he stopped doing what he did. He, uh, he was too old to judge, and the people knew it. And yet, his ministry really began in many ways afterwards. It reminds me, can I talk to my peers in the congregation for a moment? It reminds me that oftentimes we marginalize ourselves and what we can do because it takes us longer to get out of the car than it used to. <laughs> or because we have some aches and pains. We think our day is past. Other people marginalize themselves because they say they're too young. They're too inexperienced. They haven't lived enough life. Other people marginalize themselves because they say, well, I'm just not as smart as some other folks in the church. I don't know the Bible as well. You know, I believe it is a strategy of the enemy to get us to focus on what we can't do. Because if he can do that, we won't stand up to do what we can do.
And I want to say to those of you that are my age and older, you guys look at me right now. I'm talking to you. You look at me. We desperately need you and your leadership right now. We need you. And to those of you that are younger, that have littles around your house, or are praying that God will give you littles around your house, do you realize, do you realize the exponential impact that God can have through that one child who lives his or her whole life from cradle to grave dedicated to God? Do you realize the impact that one child can have? And those of you that still have children in the home, you look at me right now, I'm talking to you. You look at me. You treat them as if they are our future hope. You raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You do not let culture win. You do whatever it takes for them to know God, for them to fear God. Now, you cannot make these choices for your children, but you can create an environment where they're able to make those choices. And so I remind you, regardless of your age, you can have a kingdom impact if you will be faithful, if you will obey. Now, if when God says no to you, you go over in the corner and have a hissy fit, and out of disappointment, you start blaming him, if you lack the flexibility to be faithful and obey, then, well, your life will have little impact. But if you will trust in God and you will be faithful to Him, there is no telling what God is going to do through you and with you. And through your children and with your children, if He chooses to. And if he chooses to, blessed be the name of the Lord. If he chooses not to, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray together.